Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. All right, hello and welcome to Looking Outside. Looking outside, looking over the top of the big microphone. (laughs) Looking over the top of a big microphone. Today is very special. We are live at IIEX in Austin, Texas. That's the Insights and Innovation Exchange event. So it's warm. We've had some beef brisket yesterday. We're surrounded by incredibly smart people. So we're off to a good start. This should be good fun. And we're going to talk today about a truly fascinating topic of semiotics. So we're joined today by someone who is incredibly experienced and leading in this space. So thank you so much for coming all the way from London, Dr. Rachel Laws. Thanks so much for inviting me over here. (laughs) It's very exciting to be here in Texas with you. Yeah. And we were saying a little bit of a weather change too from the dreary London. Very welcome. (laughs) Very welcome change. Very welcome change. Quick burst of summer. Yes. So let's start with a a little bit of an introduction, Rachel, into who you are. So I've got an academic background. The doctor part is social psychology. That's my academic background. And then um, I moved into the market research industry over 20 years ago now. And um, I helped, at that time, semiotics was really unheard of. I mean, there were one or two suppliers max at that time and so um, I was there right at the beginning uh, and helped to kind of launch semiotics as a viable method and style of research in, in, in market research so I've been doing that for a long time now. Um, I'm the author of a few books, I've started to write books recently um, so the one that people tend to know is um, using semiotics in marketing which is a uh, self-contained um, teach yourself guide to semiotics so that anybody, any marketer can learn to do what I do. Um, The other one is uh, using semiotics in retail, which is specifically about retail marketing and shopping. Um, That one just won an award the other day. Um, Congratulations. um, Thanks. It won Best Book in Sales and Marketing at the Business Book Awards um, last week. So that's my professional life. Um, Then in my personal life, um, I'm an avid video gamer. Oh. Uh, So I've been playing video (laughs) games very seriously since 1991. Get out. And I don't think I'll ever quit. I don't see a time when I'll ever stop gaming. Wow. I love that. Gaming for life, everybody. For life. (laughs) What what kind of games do you play? What don't I play? (laughs) I play cross-platform PC, Xbox, PlayStation, um, Nintendo Switch, um, you name it. Wow. Um, I'm particularly fond of survival games and I love dinosaurs. Oh, nice, nice. So did you play Uncharted? Uh, yeah, it wasn't my favourite, actually. No. I thought the hero was a, kind of a knucklehead. <gasps> no. Yeah, I thought it was a bit of a knucklehead. But maybe uh, <laughs> I, I kind of like video games with... Um, I like games that have a lot of nature and animals in them, you know. Oh, so no. I played about a thousand hours of um, Ark Survival Evolved. Wow. Which, if anybody's interested, he really needs to play this game. It's entirely about washing up on a desert island and uh, trying to survive and... Um, you're going to be surrounded by dinosaurs and what could be more wonderful than that, right? So yeah, amazing. That's, that's my, that's my it's not one that I would have picked for you, so there you go. I do love a good dinosaur game. Is, yeah. there, is yeah. there a connection between gaming and semiotics? That kind of game is a game where I, I go to kind of get away from work, I suppose, as much as I love my job. I don't want to think about the real world all of the time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I like survival games because I find that in general, and particularly Ark Survival, is a game of great solitude and peace. And uh, so, you know, I can kind of wander around by myself and find a beautiful lake or a waterfall or a beach and, you know, just enjoy the scenery, chill out, do some fishing and try not to get eaten by a T-Rex. <laughs> I love that. I love that juxtaposition between the two parts of your life. Um, okay, so today uh, on this podcast, we're going to kind of traverse the different areas of semiotics. So we'll cover a few broad array of things. And what we're going to do at the very end, don't tell the producers back there, but we're going to open it up for questions from the audience. So we'll spend about 10 minutes and I'll ask you to just come up here and ask it into the microphone. Um, I never get the opportunity to do this and I always hear this. Is I wish that you would do like a live broadcast or something where the audience can ask their own questions as well or I get a lot of the I wish you had asked this so today you're going to get that opportunity directly so please think about anything that pops into your head uh, but what we're going to start with I think is just maybe a little bit of an explanation of what semiotics is because you touch on this in your book but you kind of say that people sometimes misrepresent what it is or maybe oversimplify it as just being about observing and analyzing mm. symbols, signs, and icons. Mm. And what I love is that you actually talk about it as being um, an, an art of, or a science, of observing the things that are represented and representative of our culture. So these things that we construct as human beings that are symbolic for the way that we live our lives and the cultural norms by which we live. So it's, it's, very, it's very deep. So let's start with that. Why do you think it gets oversimplified? Thanks for that. That's a really great opening question. So um, for the clients who I work with and for the market researchers who, who, who make use of our books, the very first thing that they'll encounter when they come to semiotics is the idea of signs and symbols. Right? And uh, among signs and symbols, the very first thing that people run into is colour. Uh, so, you know, why is Coke red and Pepsi is blue? Because these colours mean different things, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't, it's not rocket science at this level. You kind of don't have to be a genius to work out that um, if you look at the way that red is used in Western culture, you can figure out what it's there for, what it's used to communicate. So it means power, um, energy, um, sometimes sex. Um, it also can signify this idea of like, we're number one. You know, we got here first, we're the original and the best, right? So it's kind of enviable for Coca-Cola that they have this red colour, you know. Blue, an unusual, relatively unusual choice for carbonated beverages, more strongly associated with brands in two areas, healthcare and tech. Right? Mm. So what we're doing here is describing the just about everybody's first encounter with semiotics mm -hmm. and they, get, they kind of latch onto it really quickly because it's easy to understand and it's inviting anybody can learn to do it right you can get stuck in straight away what does this color mean once you've mastered color then you can start exploring things like what about this typeface or um, what about the fact that uh, this can is short and squat and this one is tall and long you know that type of stuff or we can talk about shiny or matte materials right so all of this type of stuff is extremely useful for decoding um, packaging and then you can also get into advertising. Um, and for many, many suppliers of semiotics and users of semiotics, they will stay there and that's, that's all they'll ever do with it and that's fine. Right. But it's only one half of the game. So uh, what we've just described is what I would call bottom-up semiotics. But there's a whole other piece of the game which is really electrifying and will keep you busy for the rest of your career. 
uh, take semiotics away from just being a matter of simple kind of train spotting, if you see what I mean, yep. and answers the question of why are we doing this? Mm. And that half of the game is called top-down semiotics. Now, what happens with clients is that um, when I begin to work with a new client, almost always the very first piece of work they want to do is very simple bottom-up stuff. Right? I'll say, well, um, uh, we want to refresh our packaging. Or quite often, ever since I wrote the book on shopping, they'll say, well, uh, can you help us make our, our stores more shoppable? What can we do to make them easier to navigate, uh, more inviting, um, get people to spend longer on the shop floor? Right? So it's all very bottom-up type of stuff, and I can certainly help with that. Mm. When they become more experienced with semiotics and they begin to see what it can do, because I begin to talk about things, bigger topics, then they're like, ah, there's a whole other piece here. And then their briefs will become more expansive. And then they'll come to me and say things like, well, um, you know, we're trying, we want to be um, um, perceived as ethical and sustainable, not just now, but in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So instead of coming with specific questions about what do we do with our plastic bottle with the water in it, they'll instead bring me ideas and concepts and values and say, what do these things look like now? What will they look like in the future? And how can we bake all of that into our brand? And that is the top-down part. And honestly, that's why I keep doing it. That stuff will keep you busy forever and ever. <laughs> yeah, there's so much, uh, so much depth that you can get into in this field. Um, and I love how you describe it, you know, quite simply, even though I know you're simplifying the complex around that top-down versus bottom-up um, analysis. One question, or actually two questions that I have for you. The first one is going, just going back to what you were saying about color and what well, we all got dressed this morning and we chose whatever it is that we're wearing. Mm. Some of us are wearing bright colors. I know I am wearing blue. I'm like, what, orange, beautiful. What am I trying to convey um, with the colors that I choose to put on? Do you find that people subconsciously lean towards making choices that convey something or um, it does it happen quite sort of naturally? Yeah, it's a really, really great question because there are people walking around at this event in branded clothing. So <laughs> there's a company here, I don't know which, who, what their name is, they're right over there at the back of the room, right? And they're wearing um, black outfits and bright orange trainers. Mm -hmm. uh, I noticed as I was walking around the branded outfits, clothing that they're wearing. Right? Mm -hmm. So. They're, clearly, there's a, no, it's not a coincidence. It's not like they all woke up individually and just decided to wear this outfit. They've been told to wear it by their employer, right? So why would their employer do that? Well, uh, bearing in mind, I don't know what this company does, but I can hazard a guess, okay? It's going to be something to do with technology, right? And the reason I'm saying that is because the black <laughs> is often in these situations like this innovation conference. Black is often a, um, used as a semiotic sign for um, being a bit edgy, you know, being at the cutting edge of things. So I'm guessing they're probably a tech brand. So what's the need for the bright orange trainers? Where do those come in? Why bright orange sneakers? Mm. Because orange in Western culture, a very reliable semiotic sign for bright, breezy practicality. You can do it. It's going to be straightforward. It's like Home Depot. Right? Yep. Um, so yep. uh, what they're telling you is we've got all the technology, we're cutting edge, we're adults and um, sophisticated, but with the flash of orange at the level of the footwear, 
don't be worried everybody it's going to be very straightforward to use and probably mm -hmm. fun to use and mm -hmm. you won't have difficulty with it see what i mean yeah yeah and so i guess you know when you're designing packaging or when you're creating a trade show appearance mm -hmm. signage you're thinking hopefully you're thinking a little bit more carefully about that i think it's really interesting because the thing is with semiotics and the meaning of semiotic signs is it's all very culturally produced mm -hmm. right so that means that everybody does semiotics all the time without necessarily thinking about it consciously you know, and that means that, um, for example, designers, whether it's of ads or packaging or um, or even uh, corporate outfits, in general, they get it right more often than they get it wrong. Usually, most of the time, right? But sometimes things go wrong, and sometimes when we get things right, we don't always know why. Mm -hmm. So that's why semiotics is helpful. So semiotic, on the one hand, everybody does semiotics just by virtue of being alive and having experiences in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. We all become natural semioticians. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the point of studying semiotics is so that you can get it right all the time and you can, as a brand owner or a marketer, you can make informed and deliberate and conscious decisions that avoid mistakes and which will allow you to gain some edge over your competitors. Great. And so when you're in the field of actually studying these things, so you're, um, say you're given a brief and you're investigating a specific area, topic, category, how do you find the things that are not being conveyed? Like, are there certain things that are being left out that you're also paying attention to? I'm just going to go off on a bit of a tangent here. So sometimes people say, what about artificial intelligence? Can we do, does this mean we don't need human semioticians anymore? Uh, can we just let ChatGPT do the semiotics for you? And um, you, you kind of can in a really basic and obvious way. Like if you're just going to stick to the really obvious stuff, right. you know, like red means power and energy and blue means cool, calm and rational, then uh, yeah, I guess you can, you know. The thing is with um, software, at least the software that we have now, it's essentially just counting things. Let's not be too fancy about it. We're just talking about counting stuff, right? Now, the software that we have now can only count things which are there to be counted, can only count things which are visible. Right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I do as a human semiologist is I pay a lot of attention to things which are absent and missing. Mm -hmm. and we do not have software right now which is intelligent enough to be able to notice when something is missing from a scene. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'll just give you like a real quick example. It's kind of a historical example now. Mm. Princess Diana, right, back in the day when she was alive and she was having trouble in her relationship with Prince Charles as he was then, now the king, of course. So they were having marital difficulties back in the 90s and it was the subject of great media attention. And Diana was great at um, engaging the press and kind of working with them to craft the story that she wanted. And she had this natural ability to sort of engage with the media that the rest of the royal family did not have. Right? On one notable example of this, she and Charles went on a trip to India together. And um, he was off attending some sort of, you know, official engagement, meeting important people. And she um, attended a photo shoot. And she went and sat outside the Taj Mahal, which is a uh, monument to love the Taj Mahal, a beautiful palace built to um, honour uh, the whole concept of love and built for a queen, you know. And she sat there looking gorgeous in her outfit, very poised on this seat with the Taj Mahal in the background. If you get on Google Images, you'll be able to see it. And she's 
conspicuously alone. <laughs> and it's the absence of her husband in the picture that makes its meaning. Right? And so she was a very skilled semiotician. And um, the whole point of that photo is not what's there, but what is not there. Mm -hmm. It's a picture of a woman who's, who's um, sitting in front of a temple of love by herself because mm -hmm. her husband has departed. Smart woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great story and it, it proves the, um, I guess, the point that you're trying to make that sometimes we have to look for the messages that are provided based on what's not there. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And in general, humans are very skilled at noticing when there's something missing. Right. And um, artificial intelligence, not so much. Right. So I'm not so worried about AI just for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, obviously it's a similar question that we get in Foresight as well, but we also do in Foresight a lot of what you're speaking to there where you're, you're mapping the landscape of the world, for example, you're scanning the horizon for what's happening. And then, I mean, I know that there's Foresight elements inside of semiotics as well. So you know what I mean. Um, you're finding the patterns and you're then looking beyond the patterns. You're looking mm. at what are you actually not seeing or who are the losers in the situation or what are the potential blind spots that I we're not capturing. All the time, all the time. It's, I've got a whole bunch of questions that I routinely ask myself, as you know, because you've read my book, right? And one of the most important questions is when you're looking at some new situations, who um, benefits from this and who pays the price? Mm -hmm. Who stands to gain? Who is in control? Who has the power? And um, who is uh, paying the price for it? And who is placed at a disadvantage? And this is a very penetrating question. And you'll, you'll discover very quickly that there are, whenever something new appears, that there's going to be entire um, uh, groups of, um, of people, of consumers as we, we call them, who are um, being disenfranchised, left out, um, having their needs ignored. Mm -hmm experiencing pain mm -hmm. where there's where and marketers like pain points right because where there's pain we can get in there and offer some solutions yeah there's something that you touched on there which i think is really interesting is you know when we think about semiotics we probably don't think about another human being as being a semiotic right like a symbol of something and what you sparked for me there was oftentimes when we're engaging with brands or companies or products and services we look for people that look like us and they are they are probably a symbol of familiarity trust that's where our bias starts to kick in so that makes decision making of representation even more important as well mm. yeah self-presentation is a whole thing right mm -hmm. especially since digital culture arrived and uh, we're all expected to have a sort of social media presence and people are acutely aware of how they look just to, I'm just going to quickly go off on another tangent again. <laughs> so over the years, I've made a number of visits to China. And um, the first one, the first time I ever visited China was back in 2005. Mm -hmm. And I was doing some work for Procter & Gamble, uh, which concerned toothpaste. And um, they very kindly sort of escorted me on this bit of a tour of the country, you know. So we started out in um, Beijing. And then we kind of headed inland and we visited um, a large town and then a small town. And then eventually we got out to some villages, right, which were mainly sort of populated by farmers. And um, so I found myself in the home of this farmer and his wife and their charming little daughter who was aged about three. Something struck me really hard in a really physical way while I was there. I knew intellectually 
on a new one in my head, I knew that in the West we're very much um, uh, preoccupied with our own appearance and how our own self-presentation and how we look to other people all the time. Uh, um, and I knew that, look at all the, uh, that was 2005, and look at the amount of proliferating technology that we have now with people taking selfies all the time and there's people taking photos of us right now and my profile pictures on the app that accompanies this, um, this event, you know. Even the places, like if we were to go shopping now, let's say that we broke out of this event and we're headed for the nearest shopping mall, right? We're going to be surrounded all the time by shiny reflective surfaces so that we're constantly um, able to behold our own splendour. <laughs> I knew that it was a. I knew that it was a thing that is part of Western culture at, at that time. It's going back a few years, and I knew intellectually that there were parts of the world where this didn't apply, but I'd never experienced it before. Right? And then that day, I found myself out in right out in you know in inland China in this rural place. There were no mirrors anywhere, anywhere, <laughs> and this was like pre. Um, it was before a time when most people had cell phones, you know. And this couple had a little television that was showing um, like fuzzy images of, you know, like government endorsed sporting events and stuff like that. But nobody was paying much attention to this, this little TV in the corner. And I was, I was really struck by the fact that there were no um, what I would call technologies of the self. It's hard to even imagine what it's like. Imagine never having looked in a mirror. Can you imagine that? I struggle to imagine what that must be like. Now, Chinese people are very concerned with self-presentation in the sense that being polite is extremely important. There's a lot of etiquette which has to be adhered to and you take great pains not to upset anybody and to behave in a way that's correct and welcoming and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And times have changed since that day and now China's leading the way in terms of digital culture and everybody's acutely aware of themselves. But that experience, that day, was the first time that I had some kind of real... Um, personal insight into how it was to have another type of human existence, how it was to experience the human condition in another way, mm -hmm. where you're not constantly reflecting on yourself and what you look like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think it's um, a great advertisement just for travel itself. It takes you outside of what you're used to in your culture. It yeah. helps you to become comfortable with the things that maybe you will find less comfortable. Um, and just even as an art of observation, and I know you talk about this quite a lot with semiotics, that there's the skill of seeing things around you, so intentionally observing the world that you can start to build in. And it can happen with small things. It can happen with a big trip that where you're going overseas. Maybe that's a little bit easier. But day to day, there are observations that we can make. For example, this event is set up in a way that's very open and interactive. So what is it that they're trying to convey to us? What is the purpose of the setup where we're all wearing these headphones and you can see who's tuned into the session and who's not? Everyone's tuned in, yeah. <laughs> so there's, um, there, there's a really interesting part in your book where you talk about that, where you, know, you could incidentally you know, feed this into your schedule, no matter what it is that you're doing, that you can uh, you know, not only observe what you're seeing, but observe and analyze and critique kind of why is it that you're seeing that. I, I love that idea of uh, bu building the skill of semiotics 
through observation? It's everywhere. It doesn't switch off. <laughs> it's in everything you do and everywhere you look all the time. Mm. All the time. I yeah. really pay attention to it and notice it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But that could probably get a little overwhelming, I can imagine. Like you're... And that's you... why we have dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. But how do you stop yourself from... Going insane. Over-analyzing <laughs> over what you see? Uh, that's a great question. So, as I mentioned, my academic background is in psychology. That's what my PhD is in. But I'm a social psychologist, so I'm not clinical, you know. I'm not a psychologist of individual differences. Mm -hmm. So I don't spend that much time worrying about what's inside people's heads. One of the things that made me become a social psychologist, as opposed to some other flavour of psychologist, and then eventually move into semiotics, was that um, I was disappointed, I'm just going to offend everybody here who's a regular psychologist now, I was, uh, I was disappointed by the tendency of, uh, in my view, unscientifically and uneconomically infer a whole lot of complicated stuff going on inside people's heads. Mm -hmm. right? so, years ago I used to work for this, I used to work for a woman, she was a wonderful woman, I'm still friends with her actually, she was my first boss when I came into the market research industry before I started my own business, right? And she was terrible for what I would call unnecessary psychologising. I mean, it was really over the top. And she said, I, I, I called her out one day because she was holding forth to a colleague of mine on the subject of hat wearing. <laughs> Seriously. She was like, oh, well, people who wear hats, you know, they're like this and like that, and they've got that type of personality. I was like, I butted into the conversation. I was like, excuse me, what are you talking about? What if they've just got a cold head? Maybe it's winter. You know, maybe they're wearing a uniform, wear a hat is a necessary thing, you know. Right. Maybe that are a wedding. If you're attending a wedding in the UK, it's polite to wear a hat, you know what I mean? She was, she was confidently holding forth on the subject of hat wearing and what it conveyed about the mysteries of the organism, you know, and all this mysterious psychological stuff going on inside their head. It drives me crazy, you know. And I kind of think, apart from being unscientific, it's a bit disrespectful, you know. I think if anybody here has got a hat on, I think you're entitled to wear your hat and not have people speculate about you, you know, about your personality flaws, you know. Mm -hmm. So I kind of um, think that people deserve to be taken at face value. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, semiotics is the study of the face value of things. So what matters about, what's interesting about semiotics science is not what, uh, whether they function as clues to some mysterious hidden stuff going on inside your skull. That's not why they're interesting. They're interesting because they're little tiny units of communication so that we can talk with each other and build relationships and build versions of the world together and build successful brands mm. and build um, inclusivity and diversity and build a better world together. That's what semiotic signs are for. So yeah, face value, very underrated and very important. Yeah, definitely. And I think a part of that is just judge the judgments that we have just, about other people. I mean, I know if, a, if someone's wearing a beanie and it's summer, I'm like, what, what are you trying to convey? Or people wearing hats indoors at dinner. You know, there's, um, there's kind of, I guess, what you see and how it's associated to the context of... Well, that kind of man-burn hairstyle that was fashionable mm. amongst hipsters a few years ago, right? Yes. Or only, only even less years ago than that. There was, I don't know if this happened in the US, but in London there was a phase where like every guy had a ginger beard. I don't know where all this ginger beard came from, you know? 
But yeah, there was a period there's where like Dave. every man... There he is. <laughs> Got one ginger beer back there. one over there. I think they look great, by the way. There you go. Great. Very nice birds, sir. And, and now you see, now you, now you stand out and look like an individual. If you'd been in London five, ten years ago, every second guy on the London Underground had this bright ginger beard. I don't know if they were dyeing them that colour or gluing them on. I don't know. Dave, Dave's all natural. <laughs> um, so... Um, I think what would be wonderful now um, is actually to open it up to the audience. Um, we have about 10 minutes left. I do have a couple more questions for you, but we'll start off with Rob. Come on up. I'm getting the audience members to actually speak into the microphone so we can capture this. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rachel. Really enjoyed the talk. Tell us more about the barriers you've seen with clients. Like you've presented results and then I, I found with semiotics in the past like some clients have trouble actually implementing it how do you how do you help them overcome yeah it? i think that's right and i don't blame those clients in the slightest that's a fantastic question thank you very much um yeah so semiotics took a long time to launch you know it was a slow burner i understand why once it kind of managed to get up and running in market research as a discipline a lot of people wanted in on the act Right. A lot of people jumped in and went, oh, I can do that. looks like fun. I'm an experienced qualitative researcher. I can do some of that. Right? Or um, it also semiotics have really attracted people who um, have um, academic backgrounds in the, um, like the arts and humanities. You know? So they might have degrees in, uh, let's say, uh, English literature or even philosophy or something like that. You know? So very, very clever people out there. Right? But also a lot of people who just love theory for the sake of theory, you know. And this has resulted in a kind of unfortunately common problem that I see this all the time, <laughs> where um, a client will get excited about semiotics and they'll hire somebody to do it. So uh, a recent example that I saw concerned children. I'm not going to be any more specific than that, okay. And uh, the client makes a product for children and they'd had some semiotic work done previously before they came to me. I uh, had a look through the reports that they'd commissioned and there was certainly some interesting stuff in there. But, on, but some of these um, practitioners had kind of got a bit carried away with their own fabulousness and their own ability to um, develop theory. And they'd failed to get to the money shot. <laughs> Which is where you tell your client, right, this is how this converts into actual marketing strategy. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have that bit on the end of the story, then why did you even bother? Mm -hmm. Because people are here to make some money, right, Joe? Mm -hmm. We know we need our brands to be profitable. We're not if you, we're not doing academic work just for the sake of it, you know. Yes. So I, I think that one of the one of the reasons why semiotics took a long time to kind of become viable and one problem that it still suffers from today is that there are, are clever people out there who um, are capable of having um, really kind of interesting and deep insights about humans, but not good at getting to the final bit of the story, which is, so what, you know? And therefore, you should blah, 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 do this with your brands, do this with your retail environments, um, do this with your um, direct mail campaign or whatever it is. And I, for whatever reason, I'm good at that bit of it. And so that's why people come back to me. I want to sneak in a couple more from the audience. So if you can give us a nice tight answer to them. Yes, Jamin, come on down. <laughs> so categorically, brands can benefit and are benefiting uh, from using this. Um, 
However, some brands have been doing it, or some industries have been doing it a lot longer. What industry do you see is maybe lagging behind and could have the biggest benefit uh, by layering this into their um, marketing? And Actually, I'm going to answer that question a little bit differently with a slightly different twist on it, which is... Um, uh, which industries have always used semiotics, but I'm not telling you about it? Ah. The thought leaders, the most progressive and earliest doctors with semiotics were never, it was never FMCG, it never was. It was pharmaceuticals. I do a ton of work for the pharmaceuticals industry. Mm -hmm. They will leap on any new method that they see is offering new insights, and they've been very big spenders in the area of semiotics. So pharmaceuticals banking and finance, the banks, you would think that banks would be conservative, wouldn't you? Cautious. Isn't that their job? No. They were pioneers. They were my very first customers. So um, pharmaceuticals, banking and finance, and thirdly, transport of all things, particularly aviation. Yeah. These are the hidden industries which have always been there in some of your texts and we're not telling you about that. Oh, that's so interesting. I can understand that though, particularly for those companies, sorry, those industries, because they're like critically need to establish trust like instantly with their audience. So there that is makes that. And also they're very competitive with each other mm. and they will do anything, they'll do whatever it takes to get an advantage over their competitors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can imagine. All right, one last lucky question. Alyssa, come on down. Come on Corey. down. This is your doing. <laughs> Hi, you talked about top down and bottom up semiotics. What are the differences in the actionable steps that brands take when they're looking at both of those approaches? You can kind of let me worry about it, about the amount of top-down and bottom-up that you're going to need on your project. Yep. You know, if you, t if you tell me what you want to achieve, then I'll design a, a recipe for you mm. that's going to have the right amount of fruits and vegetables to deliver what you need. <laughs> Trust the experts, love that. <laughs> uh, we are getting the wrap-up music, which is the lunchtime call. So I have one last question for you, Rachel, which is in theme with the show, what is your go-to when you're trying to push yourself to look outside and gain a fresh perspective outside of dragons and gaming? Uh, travel as much as possible. Mm. Expose yourself to new experiences. Put yourself in uncomfortable situations, you know? I was on my way over here and um, I was on a plane from uh, Dallas to Austin and um, I was befriended by uh, an elderly Baptist preacher, mm. the very first one I've ever met. Wow. And uh, he was he was great and very enlightening and now we're friends, right? So there you go, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I didn't know he was gonna be there, sat right next to me, but now we're chums. Yeah. So yeah, expose yourself to new people, new situations, new places. Talk to that person on the plane that wants to have a conversation with you and you're like, I just wanna watch my movies. At least get to know them a little bit. That might open up your perspective. I love that. Rachel, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much about the art and science of semiotics and hopefully the audience has as well. Um, thank you so much for traveling all the way from London to be here with us. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review or share the show and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside.